0: Let's begin with this. Uh, I wonder, have you ever had an experience like this? Imagine it's it's you and your spouse. You're enjoying an evening out with some friends. Uh, your wife casually mentions something that catches you completely by surprise. You think, now why is she bringing that up now? Why didn't she bother to tell me before? Now, she probably did, and I just forgot. But, but it occurs to you that this is bit of an embarrassing moment because I have no idea what she's talking about. And something goes wrong inside. Inside my brain, an immature, pouting voice says, well, now you can show her. You can do just those little things that will make her realize that she has made a mistake here. And so you do it in subtle ways. I I shift my posture in the smallest possible ways, just so that no part of my body is touching hers. I, I look at her a little bit less. I look at my friends a little bit more. Does anybody else do this kind of thing? Or is it just me? Uh, maybe it's a uh, it's kind of coldness that I don't want to acknowledge inside of me. Maybe I'm a little bit mean. Not so much so that it would be obvious to anybody else at the table but but Karina would catch on right away. And then I realize what's going on and... And hopefully there is another voice, a better voice, that speaks inside of me. It says, you're not being your best self right now. Maybe I look at her and I smile and and I give her arm a little squeeze. And then under the table where, where nobody can see, her foot reaches over and, and nudges my foot just a little bit. And I know that what her foot is saying, it's okay. We're together in this. We can talk more when we get home. You know that I love you, I'm glad that I'm married to you, I'm sorry for bringing that up. Karina has a very expressive foot. She says all that right under the table. Now, that tiny little shift in behavior, that tiny little repair in relationship, that moment when you move from hostility to humility, when your emotions turn from irritation to affection, when your intentions turn from wanting to inflict pain to, to wanting to connect, that moment is driven by a force. I think it's a spiritual force. I think it's a force designed by God. And the name for that force is reconciliation. In reconciliation, barriers get torn down. People who are estranged and divided, they find ways to get reunited. Hostility. Woundedness, these things are replaced by healing and by goodwill. You know, the old prophets of Israel, whose writings fill up so much of the Old Testament, they longed for this, for reconciliation. They said that that our world thirsted for it so much. They came up with all of these creative acts of art and imagination to picture it. They said, when Messiah comes, when God's anointed comes, he would bring reconciliation. And then they asked us to, to follow them as they painted these beautiful word pictures about what it would look like if God's whole creation expressed this, expressed peace and shalom. Here's an example from Isaiah in chapter 11, and verse 6. It will look like this, Isaiah says. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. and The calf and the lion and the yearling together, no violence no pain. And here's the telling part of the verse. And a little child, powerless, will lead them. When we imagine that kind of force working in our world, that kind of power, you begin to ask these large questions. What would it look like for North Korea and South Korea to live together in peace? For Israelis and Palestinians to live in harmony? In our own country, what would it look like for the wounds of racism and inequity and the marginalization of Canada's very first citizens, for all those things to be healed? Or imagine, maybe in a more personal way, a friend who's married, there's been an estrangement between them and their spouse. It's been going on for a lot of years, and it runs so deep that at night when they're in bed, if he happens to even touch his wife with his foot while she's sleeping, her body will physically, reflexively recoil and pull away. And he feels once more the pain, the distance. Imagine a marriage like that finding healing. These visions, these stories of reconciliation, they have a way of capturing our hearts. Have you noticed those of you who watch online movies how suddenly over the past month, Netflix and other services have uh, populated themselves with an abundance of these Christmas movies, that there must be a studio somewhere where they work all year long just to make these movies, because there are hundreds of them, and they're all themed around reconciliation, getting things right this time of year, spiritually, personally, socially, systemically the desire, the crying need of our world is to be reconciled. We can't always seem to do it, but it's at the very heart of the Christmas story. Listen to what Paul wrote. He wrote this to a little church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19. It says, God reconciled us to himself through Christ, and he gave us that ministry of reconciliation. What is it? That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, folks. This Advent season, these next few weeks at MCBC, we're going to become students of reconciliation. We're going to learn what it looks like, and talk about what it takes. I hope you will experience how it feels to be reconciled with God. We're going to invite you to do that today. Next week, we'll begin to look deeper at how you get reconciled with the other people in your life. On the third week, we're going to look about what it means to be agents of reconciliation. That unbelievable mission that Jesus has given to his church. And all of that will lead us up to all of our celebrations for Christmas Sunday. Now here's why we're doing this. I think that the best part of the holiday season, when we're in this time of year, is that families have this intentionality about being together about saying the important things, the gracious things that maybe don't get said the rest of the year. But I think it's also one of the hardest times of the year, because families get together, and all the cracks in those relationships, they all start to emerge again, and they say sometimes the most disastrous things to each other. Whichever it is, one are going to happen this year. At least not the way that we're used to. And all of those emotions, all of those thoughts, all those feelings, all that history is just going to lie dormant. Or maybe worse, maybe it continues to fester. I don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. We want to be intentional about practicing reconciliation. As we went through the eight challenging weeks of our fall teaching on on addressing the tough but important questions. How many of those questions had at the very bottom of them a desire for reconciliation? Questions about race and gender equality, questions about relating to communities who are marginalized and vastly different maybe from you are, whether that's sexually, financially, racially, culturally, reconciliation is the driving force that tears down walls. Let me take you on a quick little journey through the book of Genesis. Just the very first book of the Bible. It'll be really quick. Uh, Genesis is a lot about families. At least it has a lot lot to say about families. In the very first family, the older brother Cain killed his brother Abel. A couple of generations later, a guy named Lamlet comes along. He's a polygamist. He's the one who introduces polygamy to the world. He's a polygamist and a murderer. Then comes Noah, who had a drinking problem, his family's a train wreck. Then comes Abraham, who impregnated his wife's maid. Jacob, Jacob deceived his father, stole his twin brother's inheritance. Jacob had 12 sons by two different wives and by their two maids. And he favored one of them above all the others. Always a terrible parenting practice. He favored Joseph so much that his other sons kidnapped Joseph, wanted to kill him. One of the brothers, named Judah, wanted to kill him. The other brothers talked him out of it, and so they took him under cover of secrecy, and they sold him into the bondage of slavery. And then in perpetrating the great lie surrounding their deed, they took his cloak, that multicolored cloak. They dipped it in goat's blood, and they showed it to their dad to convince him. He was dead. These are the families that made it into the Bible. So you can sit up a little bit, sit straight. Your family is maybe doing way better than you thought. Everybody is welcome. I like to say that at MCBC. Everybody is welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything is possible. In the middle of all of this dysfunction, comes the story that we're going to look at today. And I'm telling you at the outset that this is a Christmas story. You won't believe me. You're going to think it's not a Christmas story. It's a very weird story. It's a brutal story. But it's a Christmas story. So you're just going to have to stick with me through the weirdness of it until we get to the end. This is a story that comes from the book of Genesis. So let me invite you on your devices or in your Bibles To turn with me to Genesis in chapter 38. This is part of the story of a man named Judah. We just mentioned him. Judah was one of the brothers of Joseph, the one responsible for selling him off off into slavery. But this is the story of Judah, not of his brother. Judah leaves his brothers. He goes down to a place called Adullam, And there he marries a Canaanite girl. Now, to any ancient reader, they would immediately know this is trouble. First, you don't leave your family; you don't move away from home like that. That is not an act. Of, that is not an act of success. There's no concept of failure to launch. If you leave, that is a failure. He leaves, and not just that. In marrying a Canaanite girl, that meant, if you're an Israelite, you're choosing idolatry and unfaithfulness. Judah is going down a bad road. Right from the very beginning. So Judah and his wife, we never actually hear her name, they have three boys. Ur, Onan, and Selah. And the boys grow up. We're told that Judah arranged a wife for his oldest, his firstborn. For Ur, he arranged a wife whose name was, you see it in your Bibles, Tamar. But Ur, Judas' firstborn son was wicked. The Bible says he was wicked in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. You'll notice the writer wants to be sure that we catch where Ur is in the birth order. He says twice that this is Judas' firstborn. Even in our day, we know that firstborns are disproportionately the achievers and the leaders. They're the presidents and prime ministers and stuff. But in the ancient world, the firstborn would be the heir to everything. He would get all the good stuff. That's why he's named Ur. He's handsomer, he's smarter, he's and stronger. and Stanley, a preacher, says that we all want to live in the land of Ur. It's true, but it also turns out that he was wickeder, And so he's out of the story really fast. In the ancient world, in Israel and lots of other nations, when a woman's first husband dies, the father-in-law is obligated, obligated to have her marry the next oldest son. You see, they didn't have any sort of social welfare system. There's no safety net. Everybody would have recognized Judah, the father-in-law, had a responsibility. He's obligated to do this. So his second son is Onan. Now, this is a polygamous culture, and you know that about the ancient world. Onan would have had other wives. But if Onan had a child by Tamar, that kid would get the firstborn's inheritance. Which means this is a huge financial loss to Onan and to his own little brood. So Onan figures out a way to cheat Tamar and to shame her in a culture where barrenness is a huge stigma for a woman. So this is in the Bible. This is Genesis 38, verse 8. Just listen as I read it. And Jonah said to Onan, this is the family plan. I want you to sleep with your brother's wife. Fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, this is in the Bible, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. And what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So he put him to death also. Remember, this is a Christmas story. You read it to your kids if they're in their 20s. But to the ancient world, in this story, Tamar would be now twice over the tragic victim. She wanted a good thing. For one thing, she wants to bring offspring into the world. And in the ancient world where survival was dicey, where the human population struggled, that was always a good thing. Not only that, even though she's a Canaanite woman, she's pagan, she wants to be part of the story of the people of God, of the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. And she's devoting herself, this Canaanite woman, to be a mother of the people of God. And yet she had been given not just to one, but now two men of great wickedness. Both had died. She's still barren. And now Judah's moral responsibility to Tamar, well, it would be exceedingly clear. He has to marry her to his only remaining son. Put yourselves in that position. His obligation to have her marry Scala, he tells Tamar, as the reader would expect, Go home to your own country, to your dad. This is Genesis 38, 11. I'll just read it for you. Go home to your dad, and I'm going to raise my third son, Selah. When he's old enough, I'll call you, and you can come marry him, and you can have kids with him. Secretly, he's saying to himself, in her dreams. There's no way I'm giving Selah to her. I've already lost two sons. He never sends for her. He leaves her to wither and to die alone. At some point in the story, Judah's wife dies. Judah doesn't spend a whole lot of time mourning. He's ready to date again pretty quickly. But he's not an e-harmony guy. He's not even a Christian mingle guy. He's more of a tinder guy, to be honest. And so he swiped right. That means he went down to a place called Timnah. And Tamar hears about this somehow. And to our surprise, this Canaanite woman goes into action. She gets all dressed up. She wears a veil so she can't be recognized. And then when Judah comes by and propositions her and offers to pay her, I'll give you a young goat, he says, in exchange for sexual favors. Tamar says, okay, but, but I want you to hand over your seal and your court and staff as kind of collateral. It's like getting his credit card number. To the passport to his bank account." Until you deliver the goat, I need something. I need some kind of security. He says, okay, they have sex. And although he doesn't know it at the time, she gets pregnant. Now she is pregnant by the father of her first two husbands. Remember, this is a Christmas story. Tell it to your kids if they're in their 60s. (laughs) Judah will be, you understand now both the father of Tamar's offspring, and she will be Tamar's father-in-law. It means, if you think about it, that that she will be the mother of these children and she will be their sister-in-law. I mean, how messed up is that? Your family, your family is doing great by comparison. Judah goes home. I'm coming to the end of the story. He tries to FedEx the goat down for payment, but the the only thing that uh, they they only look for Tamar actually among a group of prostitutes, and of course she's not there to be found there. So he says, "Forget it. If you can't find her, I'm not going to let word get out that I slept with her. I'll be a laughing stock, and everyone dies." So several months pass, and word gets out that Judah's widowed daughter-in-law is pregnant while she's still wearing her widow's clothes. Of course, at this point, Judah has no idea who the father is, and he gets all self-righteous about it. This is what he says. Genesis 38, verse 24. He says, bring her out and have her burned to death. Now, even in the Bible, that is remarkably brutal. In fact, it's told with an abruptness and brutality. It's just a two-word sentence. Bring, burn. And so they bring. And just when they're about to get ready to light the match, they are arrangers for the seal and the cord and the staff of Judah to be presented. Along with a message that says, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. And then she added, See if you recognize
1: whose seal and cord
0: and staff these are. Ring any bells? Dad? Strange for a Christmas story, isn't it? Layer upon layer upon layer. Remember, Judah was the man who sold his brother Joseph into slavery, took his... His brother's robe dipped it in the, blood of, in the blood of a goat, brought it to the father and said, see if you recognize whose robe this is. Precisely the same language being used here to confront Judah. Once again, a story being held together by misleading clothes, by deep deception, and by a goat used to cover everything up. And precisely the same question, see if you recognize this. Recognize. Recognition ends up being the big word in this story. In fact, it's a big word in your life and in mine. Judah is, in a single sentence, forced to recognize his treachery and his brokenness, not only to his daughter-in-law, but decades earlier to his father and to his brother Joseph. Have a look at this verse, Genesis 38, verse 26. It says Judah recognized them, those items. And he said, She is more righteous than I. And it's then that that little spiritual force that we were talking about at the beginning of the, message, of the message begins to work. But God does a work in him. They call off the execution. Tamar lives. She gives birth, in fact, to twins. There's actually another really interesting struggle with the firstborn where the secondborn ends up being the one through through which the line of Abraham flows. But but Tamar, this rejected Canaanite girl, gets to be a mother of Israel. She gets to be part of God's great adventure after all. And so the moral of the story, if you're waiting for it, is this. If you are a woman... And your first husband dies from wickedness and you marry his brother and he refuses to impregnate you and he too dies of wickedness and your father-in-law won't let you marry the third son. Just wait for your mother-in-law to die. Get all dressed up. Have your father-in-law's kids and it'll all work out in the end. Merry Christmas, everyone. The end. (laughs) It is a weird story, though. How on earth did that get in the Bible? Conventionally religious people get a little squeamish. This isn't the kind of story that gets illustrated on flannel graph for kids in Sunday school. Couldn't she have done something else? Couldn't she have sold Mary Kay or essential oils or learned to drop ship through Amazon or something? But the Bible doesn't really say it. It does admit, though, that the world, the ancient world, maybe our world too, is a brutal place. Sometimes what you read in the Bible, are these are not just moral fables. They live and they're grounded in a world where there is great evil and people are complicated and sometimes corrupt and sometimes their actions are ambiguous. And as readers, we have to puzzle things out. We have to read the Bible with our minds. People often have the impression that the Bible supports patriarchy, because of course it was written in the day when the Bible was patriarchal, but it's really interesting. In many of the stories of the Old Testament, like this one, one of the points is to undermine all the evil that can be done by people with power in the patriarchal system. So here's this woman, Tamar, who's marginalized because of her gender and her ethnicity and her status as childless and, Now she's twice widowed, and she's a victim of sexual misconduct, not once, but twice. And instead of being cowed into passive surrender, which the reader would expect, she shows remarkable courage, determination. In the end, she triumphs over an oppressor and a system that is unjust and stacked against her. But more importantly, she becomes part of the greatest story in history. The reason for this is because the major story, the major character in this story, the one you really want to pay attention to, is God. And God cares about little Tamar. And God's intent, his design, is always to create a redemptive, reconciling community. He wants a people that he can be with that he can rest with. He wants a community that includes all kinds of folks that maybe people think would be left outside. And he wants most of all to reconcile people to himself and to one another. And so he goes to work, even in wicked old Judah. When Judah recognizes what's going on, that's when he says, she is more righteous even than I am. That's the beginning, the first sign of a little glimmer of humanity in that man. Many years later, when the brothers are with Joseph, including Judah once more, even though they don't recognize Joseph, Joseph recognizes them and he forgives them. It's a powerful story. In fact, if you've not dogged that page in your Bible. Genesis 45. Genesis 45, verses 4 to 8 is the first recorded moment in history in which, in which one human being forgives another. It's a dramatic moment. It changes the moral trajectory of the whole human race, and it's Judah, Tamar's Judah, who plays the central role in the climactic verse in the book of Genesis. It's an amazing moment. And if you want to find out a little bit more about it, We'll be looking at it next week. But what of Tamar? She gives birth to twins, and of course we wonder what happens to her. What happens to her kids? Oddly enough, the writer of Genesis never tells us. She never again appears in the pages of that book or the Old Testament. But that's not the end of her story. Tamar does show up again, a thousand years later, in the opening stanzas of the Gospels. On the very first page of the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Really? Really, Matthew? You're going to go there? You're going to bring up that story of all the stories That belongs in the Christmas story. You didn't mention any of the other great mothers of the Old Testament, the ones to whom scandal wasn't attached. You didn't mention Isaac's mom or or who Jacob's mother was. It's very odd. Genealogies were such a big deal in the ancient world. I know this is the part of the Bible that when you get to it, you just skip it. It's long, it's dull, it's boring, I don't care. But they didn't. Genealogies were how people learned about their identity and their culture. All their stories, stories about who they were, were wrapped up in those names. They would memorize the genealogies. They would pass them down from one generation to the next. Those names meant, I'm somebody. I have a family, I have a tribe, I have a story they were the Old Testament version of action movies. They loved them. They watched them again and again. They, they told the genealogies, the stories around the campfire. But here's the thing. Hebrew genealogies never included women. But this one does. And not just any woman, but a woman entangled in sexual scandal with her father-in-law. She's right there in the family tree of the Messiah. Are you kidding me? Not just that, she's a Canaanite that woman. She's not one of us, she's one of them. She's an Israelite, she's not part of God's people. Do you mean Jesus, from a purely blood perspective, isn't a pure-blooded our guy? You mean he's partly their guy? Are you kidding me? And if you look closely, Tamar is not the only woman in the genealogy. It's really strange. Matthew includes a woman named Ruth, who also was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite. Includes a woman named Bathsheba, who you might remember. King David did himself on her in an act of adultery. Includes another woman named Rahab, who is not just a Gentile, but a Gentile prostitute. It's kind of like the Gospel writer must have poured over the Old Testament saying, who are the most startling, controversial characters that were part of God's story? Let's not forget them. Why did the Gospels do this? Because the birth of Jesus, the Christmas story, is the the time to proclaim with the greatest resonance that this is the gospel. Everybody is welcome. Nobody is perfect. Anything is possible. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not just counting people's sins and misdeeds against them. not, Not just counting my sins against me. You want to know what God is like? Jesus has come. Now you know. Outsiders aren't left outside anymore. The sinners and the saints, they get all jumbled up together and grace just starts flowing everywhere. So heavily that Judah and Tamar, thousands of years later, are brought together again in the story of the Gospel in Matthew. And little children are the conduits through which the love of God flows because God was, in Jesus, reconciling the world to himself. There's a message there. A message for you and for me and for our world. But if God can reconcile Israelites and Canaanites, Judah and Tamar, saints and sinners, prostitutes and patriarchs and an oppressor with the oppressed, who is beyond the reconciling power of Jesus? Nobody. Because it turns out that Tamar's story is a Christmas story. It's part of Jesus' story. And it's a story where the most unlikely people wind up showing up. It's what the human race has loved so deeply about the story of Jesus for 2,000 years, that you have a Heavenly Father who loves you. For some reason, God only knows who wants to be with you more than he seems to want anything else. He wants you so much that he sends his only son, Jesus, to be born in a manger, to die on a cross. And if you're honest about it, kind of like Judah, there's some stuff in your relationships. Thinking this morning, first off, about your relationship with your Heavenly Father, stuff that needs to be fixed. Maybe there's some distance Maybe there's some choices there's some behavior that you're just not proud of. So as we wrap things up this morning, I want to call you today at the beginning of our Advent journey together to be reconciled to God. To allow the currents of that little spiritual force to wind their way through your life. Whatever needs to be confessed, confess it. Whatever needs to be changed or repaired or repented of, don't wait. That habit, that relationship, that attitude. Make your heart right with God. This year of all years, when maybe there is more downtime, more alone time, more home time than any other year, make the most of that time. And be amazed once more how one tiny little life changed history. That really is the Son of God in the manger. Do you recognize Him? That really is the Son of God on the cross. Do you recognize Him there? That really is Jesus. In what everybody else thinks is the least of them. you recognize Him? You make room for him through the busy days or through the merely passing days of the season, folks. You can do this. Whatever is, whatever it is that's going on in your life, you can be more fully surrendered with God helping you. You don't have to carry it all, guilt or whatever the burden is. comes this wonderful charge and we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks where Paul says God has committed us to the ministry of reconciliation. No kidding. The world's a mess. We know that. But God loves the world. I hope you believe that. And he has a message that the unwanted are wanted by God, that the unchosen are chosen by God, that the unblessed are blessed by God in this season. You can say yes, yes to God, and yes to the ministry of reconciliation. We have all of our Christmas services coming up. We have Christmas Eve coming up. Maybe there's people in your life who think that they're really far away from God. But for some reason, this year and this time of year, there's just something a little bit more raw in their life, a little bit more open, a little more willing to take whatever that first step may be. Maybe God uses you. You can invite the uninvited. The world is, is just one great story, one weird, amazing story involving the most amazing and unlikely people And it ends up with somebody like Tamar right there in the story of the manger, right there next to the Christ child, right there listening to the angels sing. Hark the herald. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth. Mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. It's the story. Merry Christmas and Happy Advent. Will you pray with me? Let to give you wherever you find yourself as you're listening to this, just a moment, a moment in a busy season to talk to God about the relationship you have with Him. And maybe if you're honest, you've never really gotten serious about making that relationship a priority in your life. And you want to do it today. If you're just tired of around the burden of guilt or regret or folly. This is your moment. So you say to him, God, I want to confess all of that. I need to be forgiven. I I want to spend my life with Jesus. I need him as my Savior. I want him as my friend. I I trust him as my guide from this day forward. God will do that God is just so much closer than you have any idea. And he always responds to an open heart. And he'll walk with you through life. And you can let me know, or Sheldon know, or Nathan, or, or whoever it is in your life, that, that this was the day. And that from this day forward you want to grow spiritually. And maybe for some of you, you've walked for, with God for some time, but there's still some area in your life that's created distance. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a relationship that's going been going off in the wrong direction and it just needs to stop. You can make that decision today. Whatever it is, the secret in your life that you need to bring from the darkness into the light, you can tell it right now. Be reconciled to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a Father who loves us. It's often hard for us to see when we look at ourselves. But when we see the stories of other people, we can be reminded again that there's nobody that you don't love. There's nobody that you don't want. There's nobody that you don't choose. Thank you, God, for the great story of Jesus. And for that list of names that goes on and on and on of unlikely people who get folded in, that gets to include us. And so we give our hearts to you. We give you our worship. For you are our Father and we love you. I want you to know and We tell you now in Jesus' name.